Good morning. Welcome to worship at First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. We're glad that you're here to join us as we worship God by offering our prayers and singing songs and listening to scripture. Please come in with us that we may worship God together. The first lesson this morning comes from the book of Psalms, Psalm 147, verses 1 through 6. Let us listen that we may hear what God will share with us. Praise the Lord. How good it is to sing praises to our God, for he is gracious and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcast of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up the wounds. He determines the number of stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. The Lord lifts up the downtrodden. He casts the wicked to the ground. The word of the Lord. Our second lesson today comes from Acts 9. It is about Paul's encounter on the road to Damascus. At this point, he is called Saul, and as it begins, he is the arch enemy of the Christians. Listen now to the Word of God. And meanwhile, Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he was going along and approaching Damascus, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he asked, who are you, Lord? And the reply came, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless because they heard the voice but saw no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. <coughs> Excuse me. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is an instrument whom I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. And so Ananias went and entered the house, and he laid his hands on Saul and said, Brother Saul, 
The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell, fell from his eyes, and his sight was restored. And then he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. For several days, he was with the disciples in Damascus. And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem among those who invoked this name? And, and has he not come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Saul became increasingly more powerful and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Messiah. After some time had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. And they were watching the gates day and night so that they might kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. When he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, brought him to the apostles, and described for them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who had spoken to him, and how in Damascus he had spoken boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and argued with the Hellenists, but they were attempting to kill him. When the believers learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him to Tarsus. And meanwhile, the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and was built up. Living in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it increased in numbers. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Several years ago, I heard a speaker ask the audience, just pers quietly, personally, to name three favorite movies. And the speaker said that one could draw a common thread between those movies, and from that, one could get a good idea of what inspired a person. All the three movies, comedies, romance, action. Do they involve a quest? Is it about a hero or heroine against all odds? You could apply it in other directions. What about three books, your favorite three books, or maybe three songs of a particular genre? You can do this theologically, spiritually. What are your favorite three books of the Bible, your favorite three characters, three verses, three stories, three hymns? Any of these would be good indicators of what matters to you spiritually, religiously. Time and time again, I return to Acts 9. Of the New Testament, I would say it's one of my top three. It's amazing to see the changes that take place in the life of Paul. It's amazing to get a glimpse of the growing church and amazing to see how the Holy Spirit continues to work. And this is the day of Pentecost when we celebrate the outpouring of the Holy Spirit in a special way amongst the believers in Acts. Today I want to review our lesson with a bit of commentary, share a few personal examples, and then make an application for the congregation. 
first, it's interesting to look at Paul set on his mission. He's somebody who knows his heritage. He is Jewish. He is descended from Benjamin. He knows his family tree. He was circumcised on the eighth day, everything done as it was to be done. He knows his story and his theology. Elsewhere, we learn that he studied under Gamaliel, one of the best of the best, one of the greatest teachers and scholars. Paul is a Harvard MBA. If there was a Pharisees Today magazine, he would be on the cover as four under 40. He's top gun. And I'm sure his parents heard on more than one occasion, that boy will go far. He's also very comfortable in the Greek culture that dominated the Eastern Mediterranean. It was a common language. You go to any town, you would find signs in Greek. It would have been his first language. In fact, in 200 BC, the Jews living in Alexandria asked that the scriptures be translated into Greek because that's what their children spoke. And that's how we get a version called the Septuagint. 200 years before the birth of Christ, that's being used. As Paul is quoting Scripture, it's obvious that was how he first learned his words. Those of us who quote the 23rd Psalm can just do it from memory. We all do it in the King James because that's how we learned it, no matter you know, what other versions we read now. As someone in that culture, he knew the Odyssey. He knew the Iliad, probably had those memorized as well and knew the great poets of the time. He grew up in a port city. There were many people groups there. It was not a glamour capital, but it was very cosmopolitan. And with that Greek culture, language, know-how, he could travel easily, going wherever he went. In late April, I was up in, um, with my pastor's covenant group and went to a retreat center that is uh, near in the Lower Hudson Valley, near New York City. I flew into Newark, and a friend met me at the airport. We had to get lunch. And we found a Wendy's. Think about it in terms of our culture. You could be in Seattle, Boise, Idaho, Bismarck, North Dakota. And there's certain chains that you're going to see. And you have that comfort. I know I can go there. I know what I'm going to get to eat. There are certain hotel chains. Those are the things that come to, to my mind wherever you go. And even abroad, uh, there are certain familiar landmarks, certain familiar uh, bits. Not only that, of course, his family, they were tent makers and had apparently done very well because Paul's father was able to purchase Roman citizenship. And that was the third gift that Paul had. As a Roman citizen, he could pretty much go anywhere that he wanted with certain amount of protection. At one point, he is beaten and he tells the guard after the fact, you know you just did this to a Roman citizen. And the guard is like, well, I probably couldn't say what he was really thinking, but um, he's going, oh my gosh, please don't report me. Another point, he makes a point, comment about being a Roman citizen and the official says, well, I paid for mine. I know you must have paid a lot for yours. And Paul's like, uh-uh, I was born one, score one on you. He is very comfortable in his world. And there he is with his plan A life to be the best of the best, to be the next great teacher, perhaps, 
Maybe he wanted to exceed Gamaliel. He's on a mission. He's off to Damascus to wipe out this heresy that he sees. And there he encounters Jesus Christ. As we learn elsewhere, Paul shares he spent a short time after he had his sight restored in Arabia, pondering what God had done, who Jesus was. And then he returns to Damascus for his plan B life, a teaching ministry there that does very well. Now, scholars believe he was there about three years, and then he has to leave. As we read in Scripture, they're trying to kill him. Damascus was not his forever home after all. He goes to Jerusalem, time for plan C. Plan C did not exactly turn out the way he envisioned. He goes there and he is shunned until Barnabas puts himself out there and says, look, folks, look at what Jesus has done in his life. He has changed and we can trust him. And Barnabas kind of goes out. I have this image of Barnabas knocking on doors to visit. He's got Paul with him and everybody loves Barnabas. So they smile when they see him. Well, hey, how you doing? And there's Saul. Isn't that nice? And it's a case of love me, love my dog. And so Saul is admitted socially into situations where they wanted to slam the door. Paul, Saul, at this point, I'll go back and forth, Paul and Saul. He reaches out to the Greek-speaking Jews. Those are his people. It's logical that that would be the group that he would reach. He would try to speak with first. He knows everything about them, and they want to kill him. And so he is sent off to Tarsus. Plan C proves to be hardly any plan at all. It wasn't what he expected. And so he goes to Tarsus. Plan D, and that will last about 12 years. We don't really know what he did. We can pretty much gather he made a lot of tents, uh, did a lot of that, maybe even went back into the family business. Maybe at times he wondered, my life has come full circle and I never expected it. I was born in Tarsus and I'll die in Tarsus. He can't really do his Pharisee bit because he's burned every bridge possible there. He's making tents, hopefully with a relationship with his family. Does he preach and teach some? We don't know. But then we come to Acts 11, and something amazing is happening. The Holy Spirit is at work, and a church is begun in the city of Antioch, and that's the uh, third city of the empire You've got Rome, you've got Alexandria, and then you've got Antioch. And some may debate that it was actually number two and and Alexandria was number three, but it is a big place, okay? It's uh, Chicago or L.A. And a group have come there to start a church, but the apostles have not started this. It's not sanctioned by them, and they have to go check it out, and they decide to send Barnabas. And Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for an entire year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And it was in Antioch that the disciples were first called Christians. Antioch. Jesus Christ is at work and the Spirit moves and there they go. 
he goes to get Saul, Paul. Plan E, time for Antioch. And then from there, about a year later, the first missionary journey is begun. And then there's a second and then a third. If we're looking at plans and um, ways of claiming them, as E, I'm sure he went on to F, G, H, down to Z. In some cities he was there, stayed for quite a couple of years. Others, the visits were brief. Some he saw great responses. Some he saw hardly anything at all. It's a bit of a cliche you may have heard. It talked about people being in your life for a reason, a season, or a lifetime. And in the life of Paul, we see events, we see places for him to serve and to be that fit that criteria. God is at work in Paul for life with a purpose. As he said, as God spoke to Ananias and said, I have picked him for a reason, for a purpose. But those Pharisee years were just a very long season. And then he has Damascus, and that proved to be a short season, three years. Jerusalem was more of a reason, and I don't know if Paul ever fully figured out the reason behind his short stay there. And Tarsus was a long season, 12 years that he had invested there, each with a purpose. Jesus Christ encounters Matthew, the tax collector, and says, come, follow me. And Matthew leaves what he is doing and comes to follow. For others that Jesus taught, he says, go back where you are. Tell them what God has done. And in that place, live your life. We don't know why he called some to follow and some to stay where they are and follow in that respect. I've shared before about Mr. Graham in um, First Church Charlotte. He actually was the elder that stood at my baptism. And for many years, he taught the college class at First Church Charlotte. Now, you had Queens College there in Charlotte, a Presbyterian school, and in those many years, uh, they were required to go to church. They were allowed, I think, six cuts a year. My mother was on the honor court, and one of her jobs was to collect the bulletins. People turned in their bulletins from church, and she would ch literally go through the rolls and check off the names and make sure they had, you know, they were attending. Now, whether they came to church, got a bulletin, and left, she didn't ask, but nevertheless, it was required, and that helped uh, the attendance for the Sunday school class. Well, 1968 rolled around, and that requirement was ended, and uh, Mr. Graham's eyesight was failing. He could not teach. This had been his ministry for many years. Well, it was my mother. She was on the CE committee and part of the Young Mama Mafia at the time uh, that ran the junior part, the preschool program, and she spoke to him and said, just for a year, would you be in our two-year-old Sunday school class as a grandfather? Now, that's a church where you might have four generations there on a given Sunday, but also you've got people who are not from there that have settled there. And so he could be that grandfather. Okay, just one year, sure. And he did it till 1982 when he passed away. 
the Spirit moved in a direction nobody would have guessed, from the college class to the two-year-olds serving his Lord. You can look at your own lives and tasks that you have done that maybe didn't even make sense at the time and prepared you for something else. Missions that you have done in the church once you were active here and then you moved to another area. Different seasons in your life. Ways you've been inspired to serve in the community. And think of your own career path and the ways that it has taken. And now some personal examples. In March of 1992, I was a student at Columbia Seminary, and I was assigned to go preach one Sunday at the Cuba Presbyterian Church outside of Blakely. They had an early service. They're yoked with Cuthbert. And so I actually spent the night at a bed and breakfast in Blakely, preached that morning, and uh, spoke with the people after the church service. Uh, They were looking for a pastor And they talked about the needs that they had. In the back of my mind, I thought, I need to be open to ever serving at a a yoked field at a small country church. I need to be open to that. One year later, I'm in my senior year, and I'm looking at, uh, we then call them church information forms. Now they're mission information forms. We We won't go there. Anyway, I'm looking at it, a church's resume, and it, um, the two-church field in Virginia really got my attention. It's in an area where there are a lot of small churches. They're used to being yoked. They're not depressed about it. They seemed very active. They were active. And I remembered that meeting in Blakely. And so I decided to put my name in the hat, and that's where I went. But something else happened on that day. It was an early service, like I said. Now, for those of you that was actually life before Google, you got a AAA travel book and AAA maps. And I looked and I said, they're the Kolomoki Indian Mounds. I went and checked those out. Kind of funny walking around there in my suit. Um, But then I came up to Columbus and I remember seeing the town, seeing downtown, seeing the historic district. And somebody gave me a tour, 700 Broadway. I don't know who was volunteering in 92 with that, but uh, I'm sure you know the person. I do not remember, uh, but I was given a tour. I saw down there on Front Avenue where the, the flags are and the gazebos. That looked nice. I came up into the town. I saw the Springer Theater. I got out of the car and took a picture of that too. Saw the list of the people that had performed there. Now, I must admit, Downtown was a ghost town in those days. I might have been the only person. Um, Very different like it is today. But I was still very much impressed. I knew the history of this church hosting the 1982 General Assembly. And so from a corner right over there, I took a picture of First Presbyterian, 1992. It's in my photo album. I said, how attractive. I said, this is really a nice town. I wouldn't mind living here someday. In fact, later when I was looking, I had told friends that knew, minister friends, I said, "Mm, I think about as far south and west as I want to go is Columbus, Georgia. In 1999, I saw that you all were looking for an associate pastor. And I remembered all of that and got my form in the mail. Yeah, we had to use mail in those days and uh, no email. (laughs) And um, I got a phone call. 
Again, I wasn't emailed back. All of that was done, uh, <laughs> phones and mails. But anyway, I was brought here. Now, other circumstances have initiated the reason for my departure, but I fully believe that the same Holy Spirit is at work that nudged me to think about a yoked field, that showed me what a wonderful place Columbus is. I just can't see what the next step is yet, and I emphasize yet, but I believe the same Holy Spirit is at work. And then for this church, I keep several calendars in my mind from some are annual. I mean, they're all annual, but different starting points. And I must admit that I keep a calendar in my mind that runs from April to April. And yes, it begins with April of 2015 and the events that followed. And in those months that fought, weeks and months that followed, there were tasks that needed to be done after everything that had happened, what I would call first-year tasks. Do as much as you can, as normally as you can. We still had vacation Bible school like we're doing this year. It went off like gangbusters. And then April 2016, there were the tasks of the first year. It was like, yes, we made it one year. But there's tasks for year two. The Holy Cow survey paved the way as people began to ask questions of what they liked and what they wanted. And we entered a season. It was a time to assess what do we need to do now? What is the path forward? What can we do? And this church has begun year three, a time to start to put it together Conversations have been taking place the last couple of months with various teams. What do we need to do now is asked. Is there something that needs to be retired or given a sabbatical for a few years or one year? Is there something new that needs to be done? We now have the family fun day in the city. Started that last year. It may last for a short season. It might become a long tradition. What do we do now with what we have? And those are the kind of questions that are being discussed in the deacons and the mission and evangelism team and the education team and the other teams that are here. The Spirit is at work in the teams leading in to year three. And then there'll be the tasks for year four. I encourage you at some time to go back to our church's museum. I want you to look at the panel. It is in the, as you're going through that front door, it's the back right corner. It's the World War II section. And there's a section from the paper. I don't know if it was a Sunday supplement or something, but there's a history of this church and you need to look at it. Take the time and read it. And it takes references to the early years of this church. I don't want to give it away all here, but you're going to feel like deja vu all over again. And some of those early challenges of those first few years, you wonder, how did this church ever make year 10, much yet, to year 185 and onwards? In fact, uh, and back there you'll see reference to Dr. Goulding, or Dr. Golding, I know there's debate on how it's pronounced. Uh, his arrival, and he was here for 14 years, and after you look at those early, early years, you feel like, oh, he was Dr. Johnson all over again. 
There's a lot of deja vu all over again as you read that. It's nothing new. And the same Holy Spirit that somehow got this church through those first five years of its history is still at work, still at work today. You may not know what the next plan is. It may look very vague, but the Spirit is still at work. At times I'm asked, so what is your point? What is your conclusion? I'm going to give it to you now, and it's actually very, very simple. I simply ask you to very deliberately pray and ask. All right, Lord, you have us here now. You have me here now. What is next? And also ask, now that I'm here, is there something else that I need to know as well? Maybe not the obvious, but is there something else that you're calling me to do? To be open and to seek and trust where the Spirit will lead you, where the Spirit will lead this church. Because what we're doing now is part of a long, long story. It goes back to Damascus and further back than that. And it will go forward for many, many more years to come. Ask, pray, what now? And now that I'm here, what else? What are you doing, Holy Spirit? Amen. It's been a privilege to join you this day in worship. We're glad that you were here. First Presbyterian Church seeks to serve and minister in the name of Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord be kind and gracious to you. May the Lord look upon you with favor. Go in peace as you love and serve God.